Paul's letter to the Ephesians. One book, six chapters, 155 verses, 3,177 words, 13,826 characters. And this morning, we're going to break it all down. First, into halves. This book divides into two halves. Chapters 1 through 3 teach us how to see ourselves. Then in the light of those truths, chapters 4 through 6 teach us how to live our lives. You see, how we see ourselves does indeed affect how we live our lives. I love this picture of a little kitty cat looking at its reflection in the mirror and beholding a lion staring back. There's a verse that goes with the picture, Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. How we see ourselves really does affect and impact how we live our lives. And this is the message of Ephesians. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul puts you in front of the mirror. You're not who you think you are. You're no longer the boy from the hood or the girl next door. When you come to Christ, everything changes. In the eyes of God, you're now somebody special. And it's time for us to step up and put on this new identity, to live a lifestyle that fits the new you. That's what chapters 4 through 6 teach us, what that life now looks like, how a child of God walks worthy of his calling. Our spiritual position impacts our practical living. The relationship we have with Christ, it influences all our other relationships. This is what we've learned from Ephesians. This is breaking down Ephesians into halves. Let's also break it down into thirds. For Ephesians is also about our wealth and our walk and our warfare. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul unlocks God's treasure chest. He unveils to us all of the blessings that have been given to us in Christ. In chapters 4 and 5, he describes our walk. You can tell a lot about a person on the inside by how they walk on the outside. A prideful person struts. A sheepish person might shuffle. Likewise, a believer in Jesus will conduct himself, will walk in this world in a way that's indicative of his or her spiritual status. And then finally, in chapter 6, Paul takes up the believer's battle plan. For the Christian walk isn't a tiptoe through the tulips, it's a war. And we are expected to stand. That's Ephesians in threes. Wealth, walk, warfare. But here's another way to cut Ephesians into thirds. Chapters 1 through 3 are the believer's habitat. We are in Christ and all that that means. Chapters 4 and 5, we're heaven's diplomat. We're children of the king. We now represent Jesus. We need to do it well. And then chapter 6 is our combat. Oh, we're part of God's kingdom, but God's kingdom is at war with the devil. And so break it down, our habitat, a diplomat, and the combat. And here's a third way to break down Ephesians into threes. Chapter 2, verse 6 tells us that we are now seated together. We now sit together in heavenly places in Christ. God sees us now in Christ, and not struggling, but sitting, resting. Spiritually, we're rich and righteous. In chapter 4, we're told to walk worthy 
of the calling with which you were called. Now that you're a child of God, it's time to live like one. Let your divine calling color in all the practical corners of your life, even among people. And then in chapter 6, verse 10, we receive our marching orders. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We're equipped to stand and to fight. When a baby's born, all he or she can really do is lie around and look cute. I mean, a baby is defenseless and immobile. But before long, that baby starts to gain its balance. It learns to sit up, and then it puts one foot in front of the other. And then it stands. And this is the progression that a believer in Christ takes. We too sit, and then we learn to walk, and then we stand. And Ephesians is a good guide for the process. This is Ephesians in thirds. Sit, walk, and stand. Now, let's break it down in sixes. Chapter 1, God's plan, let's play. Chapter 2, one by Christ, one in Christ. Chapter 3, now hear this. Chapter 4, get her done until we're one. Chapter 5, you light up my life. And then chapter 6, Get on your knees and fight like a man. Now here's where I need to give a little credit where credit's due. At our last Calvary Chapel pastors get together, we spent a day dissecting the book of Ephesians. And this is what we came up with. I think it's a great synopsis. Chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, did you know God had a plan to bring all things together in Christ? He knew that sin would scatter and fracture, but God had a secret weapon to restore and to reconcile. All that sin would undo, God was willing to redo in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 20 closes with a prayer, for God wants us to participate in that plan. He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over the church. And thus, chapter 1, God's plan, let's play. Chapter 2 begins describing how lost we were without Christ. Dead in trespasses, Paul put it. But we were saved by grace through faith. Not of our good deeds. It was a gift earned by Jesus. And we are now God's poema, His work of art. We have been one to God in Christ. But that's only part of God's salvation. For He saves us both individually but also corporately. Jesus not only unites us to God, but to each other. And so we're no longer strangers. We're now one new race, one new people group in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2 teaches, one by Christ, one in Christ. Chapter 3 explains how this wonderful plan of God was a centuries-old secret that had just been revealed to mankind. And guess what? It was Paul who got to spill the beans. This blew his mind. Paul considered himself less than the least of all the saints. And yet God in His grace gave him the honor of revealing to the world the unsearchable riches of Christ. What was once an Old Testament mystery, Paul was now shouting from the rooftops. Now hear this. Chapter 4 tells us what God has revealed we should apply. Our high and holy calling demands a low and loving walk. We need to humble ourselves. And why? Because people are fragile. 
That's why we need to be gentle. People take time. That's why we need to be patient. Not everyone is like you. Aren't you glad? I mean, everybody's a little peculiar. That's why we need to bear with one another. And people make mistakes. So by all means, forgive others just as Jesus has forgiven you. As believers, God has given us a unity of spirit. But it's up to us to keep from upsetting that unity. And thus, chapter 4 is a call to action. Get her done until we're one. Chapter 5, and I love this theme. You can tell the pastors who worked on this lived in the 1970s. You Light Up My Life was sung by Debbie Boone. But it's a perfect theme here. For Paul tells us that as Christians, we're no longer subject to the darkness of this world. Christ brings us into the light of God's love and life. Let's now walk as children of light. Jesus does light up every corner of our lives. And then chapter 6. Once you choose to turn your back on the darkness of this world and walk in the light, well, then the devil won't take it lying down. You will become a target for his attacks. He has his tricks. He has his wiles. He tries to pull us down. And this is why we've got to buckle on the whole armor of God. Don't leave it hanging in your closet. Put it on. God has equipment for your protection. And you need to strap it on. The armor, your protective gear, but also your arsenal. The weapons you've been given. The Bible and prayer. That's why in chapter 6, we need to get on our knees and fight like a man. Now, that's Ephesians broken down into halves and in thirds and in sixes. For the last 28 weeks, we've been breaking it down verse by verse into 155 verses. And this morning, I want to read through it one more time. Hey, when this scroll was first unrolled, I'm sure the church in Ephesus heard this letter from the beginning to the end. No one left. They were hanging on every word. They were hit by the force of Paul's thoughts in one thrust, in one sitting, not once a week over a period of months. You see, you can focus on the part and parcel and lose sight of the whole. Miss the forest for the trees, as they say. I want to avoid that by rolling through Ephesians one last time this morning. I'm going to show off to you my confidence in God's Word. I'm just going to read this book. I'm going to insert a few comments here and there. But I'm trusting that by just reading this book to you this morning, you're going to leave impressed by the power of your Bible and more in love with God's Word and affected by these words. Hey, despite what we assume, you really don't need my help. This book doesn't need my help. You pay attention this morning, and this brief letter will change your life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the author, here's the recipients, here's the greeting. And notice the twofold address. In Ephesus and in Christ Jesus. You see, every believer lives simultaneously in two locations. Physically, we're in the ATL. But spiritually, we're in Christ. You see, a spiritual world butts up against this physical world. And we choose where we live. 
You can choose to live bound to your circumstances or by faith you can look beyond the physical and you can live in the joy of Jesus. And in Christ, we've got it all. We're loaded down with blessings. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has taken all of his treasure and he's put it in one place. X marks the spot. All of God's blessings are found at the cross of Jesus. And next, Paul lists our blessings. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him. And notice all these times Paul says, in Him. In Him, or in whom, or in Christ. Thirteen times he uses that phrase in these first 14 verses. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. In the original language, there's no period from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. Paul reels off 273 words without catching his breath. He is so excited over his blessings in Christ. For in Christ, we're chosen, we're holy, we're blameless, we're adopted, we're accepted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're sealed, and we have a guarantee. God's Holy Spirit is our guarantee, our down payment, our foretaste of heaven. Wow, all these blessings are ours in Christ. And since we have such blessings, don't let a single one get wasted. That's why Paul prays in verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. In other words, Paul prays for insight, eyes for your mind, so that you can apply practically what you know theoretically. And here's his three requests. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Do you realize God's calling on your life? That you're somebody special in Christ? Hey, we need no other status symbols. And... What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? 
God hasn't just given us an inheritance. He considers us His inheritance. Do you see that? God sees you as His treasure. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now available to us? Hey, we should all pray this prayer that the Holy Spirit would help us grasp just how much God values us and loves us and has equipped us in Christ. He's given us power according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Chapter 2 is a rags-to-riches story. From sinner to saint, from death to life, from rebel to relative of God. In fact, this is your story. And you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. In other words, spiritually speaking, you were dead as a doorknob. But God, who is rich in mercy, Aren't you glad God is rich in what we need most? Mercy. Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, just dead, even when we were dead, He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I love how the old King James uses the phrase, he he says, He quickened us. Made us alive or He quickened us. In other words, God put the paddles on our chest. God jump-started our spiritual batteries. His Spirit generated new life. His nature now flows through us. And then He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what you'll be doing in heaven for all eternity? Here's what you'll be doing. For the ages to come, you'll be shown the riches of God's kindness in Christ Jesus. And what's responsible for this dramatic turnaround, this rags-to-riches story? He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace, it's love that's on the house. We've done nothing to earn God's favor. It's a gift that we have received by faith. That's why there'll be no bragging in heaven. For we are His His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, our good works don't make us fit for God, but God does make us fit to do good works. God works in us in order to work through us. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, we were like stray dogs. We were living out on the scraps of this world. But in Christ, God took us in. In Christ, God has domesticated us. He's taught us how to live in His house. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, who has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In other words, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses was what divided the world into Gentile and Jew. But Jesus has now fulfilled the law, and He's removed the divider so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity or the friction, the hostility between them. For centuries, the law of Moses determined what team you were on, whether you were on God's team or the other team. But now a new line of demarcation has been drawn. The cross of Jesus Christ. Today, God's people are those who are in Christ. Rather than Jew or Gentile, we are now a third race, a new people in Christ. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through Him, we have at both access, or we, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Before Christ, access to God was limited to a Jewish priest. Now in Christ, every believer is his or her own priest. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in which the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit dwelt in a rock temple there in Jerusalem. Today, His Spirit dwells in His people, in you and me, in the church. Chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. Boy, everybody loves a mystery, don't they? Including God. Do you realize your salvation was once a secret? God's plan to unify Jew and Gentile in Christ, it remained a mystery until Paul was given the glorious privilege of popping the cork, of letting the cat out of the bag. He shared this mystery. Verse 8, To me, who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, I mean wisdom too deep for us to figure out, it has now been revealed, it's been made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Do you realize God's plan, this revealed mystery, His church surprised even the angels? I mean, God has no counselors. He has no confidants. He does as He pleases. He alone is privy to His plans. And yet our inability to know His ways shouldn't shake our trust in His love. For we have bold confidence through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart as my tribulations, at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Recall, Paul was in prison for sharing this secret. But he's praying too. He says, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. You know, often we fuss about the health and the happiness of the outer man. But notice, Paul is concerned with the state of the inner man. His inner man. Is there strength? Is there health there for him? He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length, and depth, and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. You see, only through experience can I know what passes knowledge. I might not understand scientifically why the chemicals in ice cream create such pleasure up against my taste buds. But I mean, who cares? I enjoy ice cream, not by understanding it, but by tasting it. And the same is true with God's love. That you may understand what surpasses knowledge. And then Paul continues to pray. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You should ask God today to fill you to overflowing. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now chapter 4 teaches us that with this membership in God's family, not only does it carry with it these blessings and these privileges, but it also carries with it some responsibility. For Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Obviously, a lofty calling requires a lowly walk. See, we can't create this unity of the Spirit. It's God's gift to His church. But we can upset His unity with our pride, with our selfishness, and thus we need to preserve that unity, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in y'all. How about that? Paul's a southerner. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we're all one in Christ, but each individual has differing gifts from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might feel all things. In other words, after Jesus was crucified, he descended into Hades. Down, 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 like a swimmer touching the bottom of the pool. He went to the lower parts of the earth, to the abode of the dead, as a confirmation of God's Old Testament promises. Then he pushed off the floor and he soared upward toward heaven. And as he did, he gave gifts to men. And he, he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And this now is the purpose of the church. When we gather together, our purpose is not necessarily to save sinners. It's to strengthen and equip saints so you in turn will be built up so you can go out and minister in Jesus' name and bring people to Jesus. Four, we all need to be growing, don't we? We're told we need to grow till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice, till we all come. That means we all have room to grow. None of us have perfect theology. If Christ's likeness is the goal, that means that we all need to be maturing in our faith. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Are you getting your legs about you? Are you getting some stability in your walk? That you're not confused by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting? Speaking the truth in love, may we grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. As we grow in Christ, we grow together. Everyone learns to do their share. And this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And then he describes it in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. I mean, people without Christ, they're empty-headed, they're hard-hearted, they're cut off from God. They live life with blinders on. They're driven by their lust. And this is not the way that we should live. Verse 20 tells us, But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, 
and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, a Christian puts off and puts on. You stop acting and thinking like the old you and you start living out the new you. How you see yourself determines how you live your life. And here's how a true Christian is called on to roll. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And how? How do you imitate God? Walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The love of Jesus involves giving, not taking. It's a sacrificial love. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Fornication or sex outside of marriage is often the polar opposite of love. It's taking, not giving. And this is why it shouldn't go on among Christians. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator Unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Notice here he talks about a covetous man. And he calls him an idolater. Did you know that greed can turn a thing into an idol? I mean, when anything, whatever it is, is sought after more than God, it becomes idolatry. So let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. You see, darkness is just the absence of light. Light drives out the dark. And this is how Christians should attack the darkness around them. Not by violence or by screaming or by bullying, but by just shining God's light. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Sadly, our world today sleeps in the dark, but worse is when the church falls asleep in the light. That's why we need to wake up. 
See then that you walk circumspectly. Make careful choices. Take deliberate steps. Live not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And here's an aspect of God's will, verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, or literally wastefulness. Drunkenness is many things, but foremost, it's a waste. It's a waste of your money and your time and your energy and your life. He says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, alcohol, it suppresses our capacities, but the Holy Spirit enhances those capacities. The Holy Spirit brings joy. And thus he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And that provides the context now for what comes next. For Paul is going to discuss how his relationship with Christ has now impacted all other relationships in his life. This affects our marriage, our family, our work. Your relationship with Jesus should impact your marriage and family and work. And its greatest impact is to create a mutual respect. Wives don't just submit to husbands, but Christian husbands love their wives with sacrificial love. Children don't just obey their parents, but Christian parents avoid provoking their kids. Employees should work hard for their bosses, but a Christian boss realizes that he has a boss in heaven. And thus Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ, let that fall on your ears, guys. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. And then Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Did you know wives need love, whereas husbands need respect? And God orders marriage according to both needs. Chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Generally speaking, a person who honors their parents will live longer and live better. 
And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training, that is the discipline, and the admonition or the encouragement of the Lord. Good parenting involves both warm hugs and some wooden spoons. Bond servants or employees, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service, just as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Every boss answers to the big boss. God cares about our business. Well, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Life is not a playground. It is a battleground. The foe we fight is spiritual, not visible. And that's why we need spiritual gear, special gear. Thus he says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Realize all God's armor hangs from the belt of truth. Our defense hinges on our trust in God's word and in God's promises. And then, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation. I mean, in this battle, it's vital that you renew your mind that you think God's thoughts, that you see life from God's perspective. Spiritually speaking, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And then take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Take these two offensive weapons that we've been given, the blade And the bomb, the sword of the Spirit, which is your Bible. It's the sharper than any two-edged sword. And then the heavy artillery, the power of prayer. Take those two weapons. Use them effectively. And then Paul asks that when the Ephesians pray, that they pray for him, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. While you're praying, Paul says, pray for me. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those 
who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And I hope you've enjoyed our 30 weeks in Ephesians. And I hope you'll carry it with you, not only in your hand, but in your head, and most importantly, in your heart.